Welcome to the Better Events Podcast. Join two event strategists, Logan Clements and Mary Davidson, who believe we can all create, host, and attend better events. In this podcast, you will learn about event strategy and actions that you can use today as an event host, planner, or manager. Hear directly from the people who are creating innovative and inspiring events today and tomorrow, and grow your business along the way. Now, let's get started, and thanks for listening to the Better Events Podcast. And welcome back to another episode of the Better Events Podcast. Uh, Listeners, if you can't tell, we're very excited. Mary and I are actually in the same location, standing right next to each other. It's a really funny angle if you actually watch us on YouTube. Um, We're in a very small call box that we're turning into a podcast studio for today. But what we're really excited to talk about are frequently asked questions. So these are questions that Mary and I have gotten from clients, from event guests, from friends and family, from random people when they find out that we do events. Mm -hmm. So... Mary, are you ready to dive into some questions? Yes, super ready. This is going to be a fun episode, so stay tuned and send in your questions, and we'll do more episodes like this also. Yes, this is hopefully the the first of many, but to kick us off, uh, one question that I know I've gotten a lot is, should I charge a ticket price for my event? Yes, I feel pretty strongly about this one. I think it's because I do so many events where they don't charge ticket prices, and I understand how with certain goals for events, that might be the angle that you need to take. But if one of the goals of your event is to raise funds, money, any type of revenue for whatever the circumstance might be, to me, it makes sense to charge a ticket price because it's a simple way to cover your expenses easily in a guaranteed way that you could do that. Um, And even if it's like, this is what I tell people, even if it's like $5 a person, like that's better than nothing. And that's not really going to break someone's budget, hopefully. But, I mean, there's a lot we could say about this, but my my initial reaction is, yes, you should charge a ticket price. It is going to help you in the end, especially with your event budget. But what do you think, Logan? Yeah, Mary, I think that's a great point about ticket price. I know I often think it also impacts your your turnout for your event, especially thinking in, like, the world we're in right now with, like, virtual and hybrid. Mm -hmm. I often say that you're going to have a lower turnout in terms of the number of people who buy tickets if it's free versus if it's a paid event, your show rate is higher because they're already invested in it financially. So that's another thing to think about if it's like really important for you to have as many people register for your event as possible, maybe you do it free because you're gonna get more people that way. But maybe you really want to have an accurate number based on who signs up and then actually shows up, that's where I would say actually make people pay. Because once you put them on the hook for paying a little bit, I think that's actually gonna get them to come to your event, especially now when it feels like there's so many events out there virtually knowing that it's a free event I'll sign up knowing I can get the recording if I pay for it I'm a lot more likely to actually tune in live yeah that's a great that's really a great point um the retention rate for events can be difficult like you're saying especially for the virtual world so I think that's a really good point um and then I was thinking I actually was just attending an event it was a conference and I was sort of busy and so it fell like on the back burner a little bit for me but I felt extra bad about it because I had paid for the conference and it wasn't a free one and so for that reason I really did try to make that extra effort even though I felt like I was busy whereas it's exactly like what you're saying if it was a different type of free event maybe I would have just been like oh I'll catch up later and maybe I never would actually catch up so I hear you I think both both are valuable so I actually want to jump one more thing in there because I do also think if you are going to charge, you need to demonstrate a value for the reason of why you're charging a certain amount. So like if it's a networking or a professional event with like a panel discussion, two hours, maybe you're only charging 10 bucks, $15. And that's because you're maybe part of an organization where people can be members and you're incentivizing them to become and pay an annual fee to be members and only non-members pay this nominal price. 
but also if it's on the flip side, if you're going to charge like $200 to come to my event, whether it's virtual hybrid or in person demonstrating that you're presenting $200 worth of value Mm -hmm. to the person who you're trying to buy the tickets from. Cause I have seen where that's not very successful for clients with ticket sales, mainly because they haven't thought through some of that value proposition, either they're not charging enough or they're charging too much. And it really does impact your actual success with your event. So just being strategic, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that you said that because then it reminds me too, it's not like you as a planner or a person involved in an event, it's not like you're trying to be greedy and like get all the money that you can out of people. Tickets is just one way that you can increase your revenue. So it's one of the options, one of the many options that might make sense or might not make sense for you. But it's definitely something to not just make a quick decision on, I would say. Yeah. It takes, you know, strategy and deliberation to figure out if it's going to make sense. Well, like an example, I know I signed up for like a women's entrepreneur event that was virtual, but included in my ticket price, I got a copy of the book from the keynote speaker. And that in my mind was like, oh, this is why I will pay $25 as opposed to maybe saying, oh, I wish it was free. Cause in my head, I'm also getting the value of the event and I'm going to be receiving a copy of the book. Totally. So there's little yeah. things that you can think about to not perks per se, but th- this is the process that your attendees are going through. So mm-hmm. making sure you can rationalize it as the organizer. Yeah, definitely. Love that. Okay. Next question, what's the best platform for an event? That's kind of a a big question, but if somebody asked you that question, what would you say? It is the most frequently asked question. I really, I thought we should maybe start with that one, but (laughs) um, because I feel like when people find out I do virtual events, that is like the number one question. And then my analogy always with platforms is venues and it's the same thing. What's the best venue? And that's also so open-ended because the answer to that is it depends, which drives people crazy. It drives planners crazy. I wish there was only a one-stop shop that did everything for everyone, but it probably would make our jobs pretty boring because some of the fun part is having these different venues, different platforms, different feels. So the answer to that question is always, it depends. And I usually tend to ask clients a little couple more questions. That being said, I will say Zoom tends to take over for me for virtual events and not so much as it's my personal preference and I enjoy it, more that everyone's like super comfortable with it. And every time you introduce a new platform, you have to re-educate your audience on how to utilize it. And Zoom is so widely used that it just ends up being a default. And I think it hits the marks on a lot of things, but there are definitely limitations. And I think it's just because we're comfortable with it, we tend to, I find, tend to find clients lean heavily on it. How about you, Mary? Yeah, I agree. Zoom is the one that it's like, that's the starting point. That's where I always start with clients is with Zoom, because like you're saying, everybody's familiar with it. It's inexpensive. It has a lot of features. Um, I will say like a quick little tidbit is we're looking more into the new Zoom events feature that's coming out. So the fact that Zoom and other platforms are innovating, that's something that really helps make my decision for like aid the client in their decision is if they're going to continue to change because something that I want to do is I want to select a platform that they could use again because there's a lot there's a huge learning curve for whoever's using it they the attendees the um maybe it's like me maybe I've never used it before or just anybody that's involved there's a learning curve and so if it's universal enough that it could be used again then that's also something that is a huge deciding factor I think that's what zoom offers um but that being said, if it's more, in my experience, Logan, he might feel differently, but if it's more of like a conference type of a, an event, then I would prefer to use something that's not Zoom. I like Zoom for more of the networking and programmatic pieces of an event, but not like a session um, type situation for a conference, for example. Yes, I agree with you. I think a lot of times I've done it a lot with nonprofits or ones that purposely want to have people on screen, but we could do an entire episode talking about why you need to be intentional with 
the platform that you do choose for a virtual event because like you said they don't always hit all the marks I also do think it could be a full-time job just trying to stay up to date with the latest platforms out there yes because I also feel like when I talk to other people who do events they're always like oh well have you heard about XYZ platform and sometimes I have sometimes I haven't but at this point I'm not surprised because you're right everyone's always innovating and trying to do it better so the open-ended I guess is what is the best platform all right I like this one Mary (laughs) do you pay yourself Ooh, that's a secret question. No, I'm just kidding. I love when we get into these types of questions on this podcast because I feel like these are things that people don't talk about. And it's really like super valuable for anyone who's a business owner or starting, thinking about starting a business. But do I pay myself? I personally pay myself. Yes. Um, I take a salary. If you're into businessy things, then um, you'll know that a lot of the times that's not the case for business owners and they'll take it and they'll reinvest it back in their business. Um, I'm not saying that's not something that I'm doing. I, I budget that out, and my goal is to scale and grow my business, EP events. But do you pay yourself, Logan? I do. I will, but I will say I actually, when I first started my business, did not officially like take a paycheck. I very much had my business finances separate from my personal, but I would just kind of kept everything in my business, and if I needed anything, I would either transfer myself money or pay with it on my business card and write it down in my books as owner's pay. But I never formally kind of like took a salary. And then I read Profit First last year during the pandemic. That was one of my, I got to read a lot more when all the events shut down. And I highly recommend it. We'll link to it in the show notes. And it's just a way that you balance your finance or you separate your funds in terms of how you split up whatever income you have. And actually formally putting a percentage away for taxes, a percentage to pay yourself, a percentage for expenses, and a percentage for profit, which is like the fun money. And that has like revolutionized the way that I do business, the way I pitch new projects, because I think this is a good question. And why I get it often is as a business owner, it's not always clear. There's no like rule book for how you're supposed to do your finances as a business owner. And often it's easy as you grow and get more business for your expenses to also grow, Mm -hmm. maybe on purpose and maybe by accident. And this, by me formally paying myself, I kind of like formalized that process a little bit. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, I I love it now because now when I pitch a project, I know, oh, there's a, this percentage of what I just charged the client is actually what I'm going to be paying myself Yeah. versus before it was just kind of open-ended. I couldn't have told you how much I personally made, but I could tell you how much my business made. And now I can, I have those two numbers and I know them in a way that I didn't know before. Yeah. I like that you called that out. Sometime we'll have to have an episode where we talk more about like how we budget our businesses, not just like events, because, um, the one thing I wanted to point out that you pointed out is it's super helpful to put the money for taxes aside and that is something that I do you're right you take out a percentage and so if you're not doing that you should probably do that <laughs> if you want it saves you a lot of hassle and kind of gives you more accurate books but yeah you're here I'm I currently agree. paying estimated quarterly tax payments and I'm so excited actually for tax time because I will have actually put away I, or I hope, fingers crossed, <laughs> that my estimates are accurate. But essentially, I feel like I'm, I'm helping out future Logan that come tax time next year, I'm going to be a lot more zen than I felt this year coming out of the pandemic. So, Absolutely. Okay, next question. How many in-person events do you have this year? This year being, what have you done? You I think know, it's this year. This no, year. I, 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 we've gotten this question. Yeah. Um, This is a really hard question to answer because I've done, as of right now, as of the recording of this episode, we're in October, I've done four, four in-person events. Two of the, three of them, granted, were like multi-week, 
two of them also occurred inside a COVID bubble, meaning we were like extreme. We had to get tested before we got there. We were only allowed to go to select locations and see select people, and we got tested regularly. But only four. How about you, Mary? I've done two, and then another one coming up before the end of the year. But they all they all had small audiences, and um, one of them was outdoors, which I think enabled that one to take place. Um, and the other one, we did timed ticketing. And so for all these events, there are certain, you know, protocols that we had to put in place in order to make it happen. But yeah, so two, almost three. It's crazy to think about that. Yeah. I, the person who asked this question, I feel like when I had it, it was, they were just curious how quickly we would have bounced back to, you know, whatever we call normal is. And I always just, when people ask me about this kind of stuff, it's just, I mean, we don't know. We can't estimate right now how, what COVID's going to be like. I think having added virtual to both of our toolkits has made it a lot easier for us to live in this unknown. It's stressful for clients and just helping them walk through that process. But anyway, I think it's a, it's a great question to ask. And I don't think there's any judgment in that question of wondering if you're doing in-person hybrid or virtual, because so much of what it comes down to is your own personal comfort and your personal risk. And if you're an event host, that's your risk and comfort level as the host. But then you also have to factor in your guest comfort um, comfort level and their risk assessment. So I think it just is, is hard to see any of our clients really committing to 100% in person as they did back in 2019. Yeah, and it depends where you live too. You know, if you're listening to this, it completely depends where you live. Logan and I are in the Seattle, Washington area. And so, you know, that that right there is a huge deciding factor for that for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, it's like you said, there's so, so much that goes into it for sure. So we'll see what happens next year. What is the biggest difference between Zoom meeting and Zoom webinar? I just wish you all could see us right now. Make sure you look at our YouTube video. It is, it's great. We're going to post a, we'll post a picture on our, on, our, uh, on our Instagram because this is comical, comical it is. in this tiny room that we're in. <laughs> I can't get over it. Okay. Um, the biggest difference between Zoom meeting and Zoom webinar. Um, Zoom, well, I think there's, there's quite a few differences. And I think the biggest is the ability to be able to break out. And have that interaction type experience in that form. Um, what you can do in Zoom meeting and you cannot do in Zoom webinar. Zoom webinar is more gated in a sense. Um, you know, I guess kind of in that regard. It's more of a viewing experience. Um, and for that reason, I love Zoom webinar. <laughs> it, there's, there's less, it's less risky. This is actually what I love to say about Zoom. Is um, as far as risk goes for events... Zoom is a pretty risky platform, but Zoom webinar is much less risky. And so whenever we're weighing, you know, pros and cons about events, that's always part of what we go to is risk. And, and when I'm talking with clients and so, yep, I'm going to say Zoom webinar is less risky, but what about you, Logan? Well, I think it's the main thing is the interactive piece. Mm -hmm. Like if you really want to have attendees on screen and you as the speaker, facilitator, the host really want to like have a visual to who you're talking to. Zoom meeting hits that. And like you said, the breakout ability. But if it's a kind of a, a passive experience for the attendees where you're kind of talking at them or maybe you purposely don't want to make them be on screen, I think Zoom webinar is a great option. But I know a lot of people, I think, equate the two or I found some clients just kind of swap them out like they are the same. And while there are so many similarities to the functionality, it's some of that nuances that there's certain things like in Zoom webinar you cannot do that you can do in Zoom meeting and vice versa. Yeah, and I think also a lot of events that we've done together, and then I'm assuming separately as well, are like conference type events where they have sessions that are Zoom meeting and sessions that are Zoom webinar. So it's like even certain events, 
utilize both because each session or whatever has a different need, right? That happens. Yeah. So I think it's just interesting to see how people intertwine both of them. Like they can fulfill different needs for one event. Yeah, you could definitely, they're, they're useful for different things. Okay, so our next question is about a platform that we both used and we get this question semi-often. So Remo, is it worth it? And, and maybe explain what Remo is in case people aren't sure. Yeah, so Remo is another virtual event tool. I would say it re- recreates kind of the table layout feel of an event where you can have a table where you're having a private conversation with up to like eight people. And then you can also table hop. So you can physically see who's sitting at another table and you can go over and virtually join them. And it also has some conferencing abilities, meaning I can live stream and have an announcement that goes out to everybody at all the tables. But then I also can just have private discussions at your table. I've worked a couple events that have used this to like replicate virtual networking. My favorite, we used it for speed mentoring, which was really cool. So we had one mentor at each virtual table. The rest of the table is filled with mentees and then the mentors rotated. So we've done this in person and we were pretty smoothly able to replicate it virtually using Remo and I've heard but I've also had mixed results with it I will say when I used it last it was pretty clunky Um, there's a lot of little like bugs it doesn't play well with everybody's browser or if they have a VPN with work so we really had to have like a human and that was me for one of the events at like a trouble like a help desk table where people could come to Um, And that's where we kind of had to invest a lot of time. And I've also just found financially a lot of my clients who want to have that functionality can't afford it. But Mary, how about you? (laughs) Yeah, I just... Is it worth it? Yeah, I did an event in Rima last week. And so it's real fresh in my brain. Um, I would say that they're they're innovating a a little bit. And so it is a little spendy. But for platforms that replicate that networking, table hopping type of experience, so it... Like, like literally, like Logan said, it's a floor plan, so it looks like an actual event. So as far as replicating an actual event, I feel like it does a good job. I feel like that aspect is unique to it. I think it's worth it in a sense. Um, but it depends on what your goals are for the event. Like, it's, it's spendy if you're only going to be networking for 30 minutes, in my opinion. It needs to be a significant part of your event, your scheduled. Which um, they just yeah. restructured their pricing. So they, they now did. do have a free version, which they didn't have. I think they literally announced it today. And so um, that's something I think to explore. But it's just a, it's something different. If you're looking to shake it up from Zoom, I recommend you go look at it. But I agree with Mary. It's not always worth it, depending on the person. So it kind of goes back to that platform question as well. Yeah. Mary, how do I sell sponsorships for my event? Well, so if someone's asking me this, I don't sell sponsorships for an event. That's one service that I'm pretty strict on not offering for most things, I'll say, oh, yeah, we can make that work. But no, I don't I don't sell sponsorships. And the reason is because I believe spo- sponsorships and partnerships, anything like that, should be within the company or within the organization because if they're doing it right, it's all about relationship building. And that's not something that I can do as well as the organization can because they are representing themselves and their mission. And I can only do that so much. There's only so much I know. And also... I'm working with multiple clients, so I'll do the best job that I can, but in reality, they're going to be able to do a more, I would say, long-term, robust relationship building job. So I don't sell sponsorships. What about you? I don't either. Um, I have had clients who've asked me this question in the sense that they're looking for like tips for them to actually utilize to kind of like improve their sponsorship process. Um, And on that regard, I would say 
for me, it's really being consistent. So if you're going to offer sponsorship perks or if they come in at a certain donor level, they're going to get XYZ. And just being sure that you are consistent with that so that if you're giving perks to someone, they did become a sponsor for you and not giving out some of those perks for free. That's a big one. And then I think really you can just, if you're selling sponsorships and your relationship building, like Mary mentioned, like you, there's no such thing as doing it too much as long as their intention behind it. So sending someone the same sponsorship document with the same wording over and over and over again and being frustrated that they're not responding to you, it's they're not responding because you're not changing your tactic. Now, if you're approaching them saying, oh, this we're gonna to talk to you about all the engagement our, our attendees are gonna have, and you don't get anything out of that, but you say, oh, and now we have this amazing sponsor, this amazing speaker, maybe not have some that, or maybe it's my venue. You know, Changing up your approach, I think, will help keep the relationship fresh but continuing just to try to hit them with the same selling points is where I see clients or other events I've been to clearly kind of miss the mark. And I also think not every sponsor is the right fit for every event. I've been an attendee at events where they've had sponsors that clearly weren't the right fit for what they were looking for, but they got sold by the right person and they bought into it. And it just, there is that disconnect. So you do want to make sure that it aligns with whatever your event goals are or your organizational goals. Yeah. And one other note about that too is when you're working on um, these sponsorships in any form, then make sure that you're also aware of the regulations. And this totally depends on the company that's sponsoring. But a lot of the work that I do, I think, as a lot of you know, is with the fundraising and nonprofit world. And so there are regulations regarding sponsorship and like how many benefits you can give them if they donate based on how much they donate. So it's not just like you give me any money and I'll give you any benefit. There are restrictions in place. So also be aware of those. I think that's important to point out. It's not just a free for all, um, but you know, it'll, it'll be okay. I think sponsorships are kind of overwhelming, but build the partnerships just like you would any you know other relationship be real. Yeah. And good luck. Yeah. And I also think a, a cool tip, if you are doing an annual event or something that repeats, trying to enter in like a multi-year deal, or selling using using the idea that this event will return and that kind of angle can also help you with sponsorships and isn't something to be forgotten because sometimes organizations who are getting sell, sold to to you know ask for the dollars they might be more excited if they know this is going to be a three or four year initiative versus just a one-off event all righty next question how do you measure success with an event this one is so broad because once again, it depends on the kind of event, but I liked this frequently asked question that we get because I will say it's actually that I, I turn the tables often and this is the question that I will ask clients because I've learned I don't want to assume. So this is part of, I know Mary, in your deep dive, you talked about kind of your checklist you go through and like when you're working with a client for the first time. And this is like either as a part of my discovery call or like my second call or interaction with them is asking how the client will define, will measure success because there's things I do, you know, like how, what did this, if it was a virtual, did the stream work? Were all the speakers fine? Did everybody have a good experience? Like those to me feel like they're signs of a successful event, but for my client, they might be different. And so I always want to make sure that I'm aligned with whatever their goals are. Like is the event about raising awareness about their brand and just getting as many people? Or is it really about engaging with a really tight knit small group of people that they're really excited about or raising dot money or, you know, whatever it is, I find it's helpful for me to ask this question to them versus assuming that I understand what this is just by guessing. How about yeah. you? How do you measure success with an event? Yeah, this is a hard question. And when I think of like, okay, so if we're talking about how a client, like you were just talking about how a client measures success for an event, 
I think a lot of it goes back to those goals that you said at the beginning, like the episode, the podcast episode that we recorded about starting with why, um, finding your North star, though, that's the time, the, the pre-planning part of an event where you set the strategy, you set your goals, that's where you should like really be setting those metrics for success, whether they, they might not all be metrics. Um, maybe some of them are less tangible, but a lot of them might be super tangible measures of success. So, um, that being said, something else I think of is like, how do I personally, as a planner who's finished an event measure success? That's like a whole different answer because if I've sometimes felt like, I didn't do the best job that I could, although, of course, I tried technology's hard sometimes, but, like, everybody else seems to be so happy with it, then that, like, changes my my view of how I've measured success for that event, because, like, if they're happy, then I'm like, okay, then I'm happy, too, (laughs) Um, but then vice versa, like, I feel like this is actually a larger conversation, because this is where it comes into, like, I don't know, Logan and I talk about this a lot, like, doubting maybe doubting ourselves or it's just hard sometimes to measure success for yourself like how you feel like you did as a business owner or as a person involved in an event versus what the metrics and what the people tell you so yeah imposter syndrome is very real when you're a business owner I think it's also in events but especially if you're a business owner Mary and I both we are solo business owners so you don't really get a lot of external validation from those close to you so when you hear it from a client it's really nice but I'm with you Mary I think it is Often there are times where I'm like, oh, the client's happy? Cool. I'm happy. But there's definitely notes for myself of what I would do differently if I got to do this again. Yes. Um, But that's also one of the reasons why I love doing what we do so much because I think there's always chances to learn. And sometimes the most boring events are the ones where everything goes completely according to plan and nothing unexpected happens because I enjoy the one as sometimes they're stressful in those moments, but I enjoy the ones where I get to learn. So, yeah, I love to debrief myself after an event. That's like one of my favorite things to do. I'm like, Hey Mary, you can do this better next time. Yep. (laughs) There you go. Always learning. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Mary, another question we got here. Do you negotiate budgets with vendors? Um, I do sometimes. So If I am booking a a vendor through myself, which I don't actually do that very often, I try to always have them go through the client, but um, then if it's through myself, absolutely I do. But so sometimes I get in situations where, you know, the client is like, I'm one of their vendors and they've already booked somebody else. So the part that I like to get involved in most is like before the client starts booking vendors so that I can kind of have an opinion, not that I'm trying to force my opinion upon them, but I don't want anybody to get, I want to say ripped off, but I know not, there's not like vendors out there trying to rip everybody off but it's just I want to be there for them they're hiring me to be there for them so if they can just hold off and wait till I'm like on board to kind of offer some feedback about that I I appreciate that and I hope that they appreciate that too um then especially too um with nonprofit fundraisers a lot of organizations don't ask for donations from their vendors or for like an in-kind discount and they should because almost every time people will say yes and that's my experience. And so it kind of bums me out when they'll just go ahead and book someone. I'm like, no, did you ask them for a discount? You really should. Um, you'll probably save at least like 10 or 15%. So we've got to have some vendors who are listening no. to this who are like, no, Mary, don't negotiate. Like that's, we don't want to ask for <laughs> discounts. Discounts can be a hard word, but I, I agree with you. I think especially if you're a nonprofit, it's not unheard of to ask to see if they have, you know, discounts. Some people don't like that word. So like nonprofit friendly or any kind of like in-kind sponsorship or anything donation. Um, I would think if you are someone who is where the budget or how much you are spending on your event is one of your like key metrics or something like that, I think it's always helpful to try to negotiate. Or at least for me, I like to really quality check to make sure that you're 
getting everything you need from this vendor, but also nothing that you don't. And I just went through this process for a client um, trying to get things quoted out for audio and video equipment for an in-person, potentially hybrid event in 2022. And I had to reach out to vendors who I've not had to talk to for two years because I've been living virtually, doing a lot of virtual events. But that was one. I got a couple quotes that were pretty crazily priced for a nonprofit event that just made me realize like there are there's not vendors out there trying to like swindle you or anything, but I think there are ones that know that not every person working an event has the background in knowing exactly what they need and they take advantage of it sometimes and it's a way that they can just make some extra money. So there was padding in this budget that I noticed and was really confused of why they did that and purely it was because I think they thought my client wasn't going to engage with someone like me to like talk through it. So not always is it going to be that you get a discount and more it might be swapping out equipment or knowing what you want but like just looking through things, I would say, if you're going to negotiate with vendors and just making sure they're super clear on your needs and using an event planner like Mary or I is something where that's really helpful. If anything of this that we're talking about is stressing you out, that is like our role and what we love to do because we kind of know when when to push and when not to, I would say, because I wouldn't say you need to do it with every vendor, but it doesn't hurt to at least double check that they understand and are getting everything you need. All right, what do you do when you're feeling stressed out in the event planning process? That is a good question. <laughs> um, I would say, well, I, one side of this is I often, I've been getting a lot of feedback from clients recently that just makes my heart so happy, is that they are often very, very stressed out, and then they talk to me, and then they say they feel better. And I say that is really my job, and again, another reason I love what I do is being that person that can relieve the stress of some of these unknowns and like knowing the virtual production side, that's one that I'm like, oh, of course, I'll let me take that on so you can focus on the other stuff that you do well with my clients. But for me personally, when I get stressed out, um, I have two tactics and they're kind of in contrast to each other. So one of them is to like drop everything, stop doing what I'm doing and like go on a walk or exercise or something, just do something that's different than being in the event planning process. Or I like to kind of put everything out there. And so in different ways, sometimes it's calling and talking to you or calling and talking to one of my other friends or writing it all down. Because I find sometimes if, it, if you're freaking out like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to do a timeline. But like, I've never done a timeline before or this for this kind of event. Where do I even start? Like breaking it down into smaller tasks or talking it out with someone for me is usually the way that I can kind of de-stress and realize like, on service value, it seems like this big, hard thing to do, but actually, okay, I already know some of these pieces and I now just need to answer these smaller questions or taking a break and then coming back to it because you'll realize that sometimes you just need to take a breath. How about you, Mary? What do you do when you're feeling stressed out in the event planning process? Oh, I, well, I think there's some preventative things I do, which is trying to schedule out and like block time, block out my, my time. So one of the things that often stresses me out is like, oh, I feel like I'm not on top of it enough for this client because I have this other thing going on. And like, I guess it, it comes into play when they're more managing multiple events at one time, which is often. And so the reality of it is if um, I schedule out and time block my time and I know I'm spending this amount of time for this client, then I feel like I'm, you know, making the needed effort consistently for them. And then I can kind of close it, move on to the next person. So that helps that feeling of stress. And then additionally, um, like you said, taking a break, taking a walk, all of those things help tremendously. I notice that I just like go, go, go. And then it's like 6 PM and I'm like, oh. and then that seems to be the time when I start getting stressed and feel like I have to do all the things. But in reality, then I just like take a moment and I'm like, okay, what do I need to do like right now? And the answer is usually nothing. 
So I just stop, mm-hmm. close my computer, and I say, I'm going to start again tomorrow. And then uh, for me, I'm like a morning person, so I'm always more with it in the morning. And so um, those those stresses seem lesser the next day if I can just put them to the side and take a moment. I think that's helpful. Yeah. I think my other, if you're listening to this and someone who's like, I, Logan, Mary, I'm very stressed out about my event planning process right now. My suggestion for you would be to ask for help. Now, you don't have to ask for help with the whole thing. I mean, Mary and I have come in and we do event planning the whole thing. We come in and we do just a part of it. But no matter if you're someone planning an event, hosting an event, or you're another event vendor, just don't be afraid to ask for help. Mm-hmm. There are so many other planners that I know that I have called up when I felt stuck in a situation and either I don't feel like I knew enough or something and I can call someone who either knows more about that topic more specifically or in like a di- just a different perspective on it. I just think sometimes we think calling like asking for help is a weakness when I really think it's honestly a strength. And this comes back to something I know Mary like we both value is like community over competition and this whole idea that, you know, collective brain and sharing our knowledge and kind of helping each other out each other out only helps everyone collectively. And so that's something I know it feels scary sometimes to call someone up and admit that you might not know something. Um, But I found that so helpful for me whenever I've gotten to like a stuck point in any of my event planning processes. Yeah. And I want to leave you with a deep thought, which is to keep the bigger picture in mind, just just like not even about events, just like in life. That's something else that I don't know if it helps you or makes you feel stressed out, but it helps me just to be like, all right, this is just a little chapter. We're going to move on. It's going to be great. (laughs) So you got this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) I honestly, if if we have not sold you yet on going over to checking in this recording out on the YouTube channel, what's up YouTube? We'll say hi. Um, We are in this tiny little, like we're standing. We're all sorts of awkward. So just please go. Closet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to do with our hands. I think there are a lot of podcasts that probably did in-person podcasting before the pandemic and then had to adapt to virtual yeah and i think we're having the inverse of that we don't know how to function where, where are we supposed to look i don't know i'm looking at mary i'm Mary's like looking, looking at, at the camera, camera. <laughs> so this is this has been a, a learning experience for all of us uh, we're very excited though to physically be in the same spot thank you vaccines if you're someone who hasn't been vaccinated please go get vaccinated because that's how you can do podcasts with your friends in tight closets Woo-hoo. or go to really crowded events that hopefully are eventually coming back and that brings us to the end of our episode of the Better Events Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Better Events Pod. Send us an email at the Better Events Pod at gmail.com. And we're excited to be back with you again next Wednesday.